Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Why don't you get to free a Beamish right now on China? Well, let's do that. She joins us from uh, Pantheon Economics. Freya, I, the, the Apple story looks like a China story. Is that the read across? Can I read across from Apple into China uh, sort of consumer weakness? Or is, or is the Apple story just idiosyncratic? It's got the wrong product or the wrong price point or whatever it is. No, I think this is a pretty kind of uh, macroeconomic story here, although Apple's so big that you can sort of, you can read across in the opposite direction as well. But um, in this case, actually all through last year, the, the headline retail sales um, year over year uh, prints were coming in a little bit, quite significantly stronger than um, what the underlying data was telling us. And even those headline prints were, were deteriorating. The way they have, um, the way they publish the data in China, um, you get the, the underlying um, levels data, and that doesn't always match up with what you see flashing up with the year-over-year kind of headline prints, um, because supposedly those headlines are are, uh, adjusted for sampling distortions, uh, which occur because firms fall in and out of the the sample. So if you have um, a lot of kind of smaller firms, because it only includes the the larger firms, if you have a lot of firms transitioning towards smaller firms because their revenue is is, is falling, um, then you get this big drop in in the underlying value uh, the, the levels um, of, of retail sales values. But you can extrapolate from that, um, if you have that quantity of firms um, that, are, that are falling out of the sample, that there is a, a great deal of underlying weakness that wasn't really being reported in the in the headline figures there. So that okay. certainly from, from the kind of the, 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 the sales data was, was there. Freya, when did the Chinese authorities respond? We saw a little step forward today, uh, increasing the number of banks that uh, are uh, eligible for the reserve requirements uh, cut. Uh, They can lend a little bit more money into the real economy. Do we get a bazooka from the Chinese authorities? I don't think we get a bazooka because they, they still are very much up against um, new constraints that they haven't had previously. Um, one of those being the environmental constraints, so the kind of the industrial, the old guard polluting industrial companies. They can't really, uh, they can't just ratchet up production there anymore because it's such a political issue to have to have clean air with these new environmental targets in place as well. Um, and those old guard firms that are, are the kind of the way in which the, the authorities have been used to driving the economy, um, they're also the over-indebted yeah. firms as well. So they, they're, they're cognizant of the kind of the, the, the longer-term outlook. Um, and on top of that, we also have the, to, to realize that China's current account surplus has, has dissolved into, into nothingness. Um, as right. a percentage of GDP, it was, it was kind of nowhere. Um, and that means that they, they have limited space for a, for a fiscal kind of bazooka. Well, Freya, just in the limited time we got, let me bring up this chart. I love this chart, folks. This is log China growth. And all you got to know is the volatility of years ago the crisis, obviously, and the smoothness in the rollover in their GDP growth that we've seen in the last two, three, even four years as well. What is the mood like on the ground in China? Away from the macro babble, away from the apple babble, what's the domestic economy and mood like right now, Freya? 
Well, I think actually the, these kind of the, the the lack of volatility that is is quite kind of perplexing in the context of, of Chinese um, Chinese the, the listed data and, and also the kind of the price movements that we've seen um, PPI over the last few years uh, that doesn't really reflect things that that are going on on the ground and actually you can tell that even from the from the data that the authorities publish if you look at the nominal GDP growth and then you kind of extrapolate what real GDP growth would be um, by compiling your own mm. deflator then you you do get a lot more yeah. volatility than, than what is, is showing up in, in, the, in the, the kind of official okay. headlines there. So I think actually the, the, it's, it's a lot weaker than we're seeing. Okay. Wonderful. Fred Bamish on short notice. Thank you so much for joining us on Pantheon. I want to focus on Apple in the here and now and bring in Walter sure. Pysik, BTI Chief oh, Telecom, Wireless and Communications Equipment Analyst. Walter, how didn't they see this coming? I mean, this is a huge mess in China. It, you know, Tim Cook did make reference to subsidies and upgrade rates and things like that in developed markets. And, and that's certainly been an issue for a number of years, but there's really no evidence in the market about a, a this type of change in terms of subsidies and upgrade rates. So this is really, I think, primarily on the back of China, and it's a massive mess. So you're talking about consumers that just either can't afford the phones. I mean, there could be some market share losses that, that are going on there, but really, right. I think it's it's a it's a clear sign that there's major economic issues going on in China right now. Walter, um, our our economists are saying it's much more a China economic issue. Our John Butler at Bloomberg Intelligence, I asked him the question. Let me ask you the same question: Is you mentioned the price of the phone in America? The vast majority of people buy a monthly plan iPhone. Do they do that in China, or do they have to come up with X number, $700, $800, dollars to buy the toy? I mean, I think it's unique in, in the U.S. in terms of the payment plans and how long we've had them. There's some other developed markets that, that have, have uh, adjusted to that, but in, in, in some of these other prepaid markets, you're expected to come up with, um, with a lot amount, of money. Um, right, but there's also trade-ins, right? And, and Cook talked about trade-ins. Um, yesterday as a way to offset this in his, in his note to investors. But again, that is not a new thing. Right. Operators have offered trade-in, so that's not like that's going to uh, change yeah. the market. The issue is, you know, people in China just don't have the money to pay for, okay. for these phones, and, John, and to a much greater extent this year than any prior year. John Templeton, Sir John would say, shares are on sale today. Does Walter Pysak load the boat here on a sum-of-the-parts analysis, or are you going to wait for the debris to clear? At, at $143, the free cash flow yield is now 10%. So, and, and it's not like you have a company that's not going to do anything with that money. They're going to use that free cash flow and the existing $130 billion of net cash that they have to buy the stock back. So, even, so we had this before, Tom, where, where the company wasn't generating growth in net income, but they, create, they created the appearance of earnings growth by buying the stock back. And that's exactly what's going to happen this year. Net income, you're not going to have revenue growth this year. Your net income might be down because there's going to be some margin pressure. There has to be when you have this much of a revenue, um, you know, offload. But you're going to show some earnings growth, you know, relative to the market. And, and at a 10% yield and a 25% discount to the overall market, I think it's a good value idea still at, at this level. So what's the multiple that this is going to trade at, Walter? What's the basic assumption for you? So right now it's trading at a 25% discount. I think the market's like 14 and a half times, something like that. I mean, I think if they can return to growth, even if you rip China out of your numbers 
it's still a company that could return to top line growth in the second half of the year, generating decent earnings growth. So if you're at parity with the market, that, that can get you to 200 bucks a share or 197, which is our target. This is a cash machine. We always talk about the gross margins over at Apple, but at 38%, I think that's the low end of the guidance range as well. Walter, have you got any basic assumptions and how have they changed in the last 24 hours just on the margins? I mean, whenever you pull in um, revenue from a high-margin product like that, and you can't, you know, transfer your expenses, it's a company that spent a ton on, has spent a ton on R&D with a lot of, not many new products to show for it. You have to take your margins in. You just, you just have to. I mean, 38% is still a great number relative to other consumer electronic companies, but you have to pull in, in the gross margin, I think, going forward until you see some signs of stabilization in iPhone revenue. There's going to be some big complaints about the communication from this company over the last couple of months, Walter. First, it was a change of the communication of the guidance, and they, now it's the change of the guidance overall. They told us they wouldn't give us the unit numbers, and not to worry about that because things would still be okay. Are you scratching your head somewhat about what you've heard from this company over the last couple of months? Does something not add up to you? I mean, look, I think it's just a lack of experience of never having to deal with this type of a revenue miss before, right? They 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 haven't been through this in in you know whatever more than a decade. Uh, it just doesn't also look good though that. 60 days or so ago, you, you told people you're not going to report iPhone units, and then surprise, surprise, it comes out that you're going to miss your iPhone unit number by, like, more than 10 million okay, phones. But it just it doesn't look good. How do you respond, then, as, you know, a frontline sell-side analyst, to the idea that Tim Cook is reacting to President Trump's trade war? I mean, that's not in your strategic three-, five-, or one-week business plan. I mean, the fact is, Mr. Trump has upset the trade in revenue generating Apple cart with America and China, right? I mean, it, it's possible to view it that way. I would look at it the opposite way, which is okay. Apple is showing you the tough position that China is in right now. So that gives our president a tremendous amount of power in any trade war negotiation that he's going to have going forward. I'm not sure that Apple's miss is a result of the trade war. Right. It's reflective of what's going on. It may have been... Uh, enhanced yeah. more, you know, in, yeah. in, in the recent weeks. But if anything, that's, yeah. that's just showing you the, the position that China's so, in right now. Now, do you have a meeting with Tim Cook at 3 p.m. this afternoon? Are you going to be in that meeting, Walter? Um, they have ruined our ability to enjoy this <laughs> Manchester City Liverpool match today. Uh, unfortunately, Walter had other plans. Terrible timing. Maybe, maybe they'll use a free cash flow to buy Liverpool for fourteen billion for Mister Henry. Walter Pysig, BTIG analyst, and of course Liverpool fan as well. Walter, great to catch up with you. Busy Walter, morning. Thank for you. you so much. I know. Right now, our Michael McKee with Robert Kaplan of Dallas. Thank you very much, and good morning to our audience worldwide on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Thank you for joining us. Happy New Year to you. I'm not sure. You look at the red on the screen there. I'm not sure how happy it is <laughs> yeah. for investors. So I, I got to start. There's only one question that matters to the markets. Has the correction been long enough, deep enough, severe enough that the Fed has to react? Well, uh, let me let me answer it this way. There's three big issues that I see reflected in the markets and are consistent with what I'm seeing in the economy and discussion of the context. Uh, global growth decelerating. Um, interest sensitive and economically sensitive industries are showing weakness and financial conditions have tightened uh, and mean credit spreads have widened. And I think those three issues 
uh, are, I'm sure, affecting the markets, but they're also affecting my thinking about monetary policy. And uh, I, I, it's going to take some time to see the depth and breadth of those three issues. But do you think the Fed should go on hold for now? My own view is we should not take any further action uh, on interest rates until these issues are resolved for better or for worse. So I would be an advocate of taking no action. And, you know, for example, in the first couple of quarters of this year, if you ask me my base case, my base case would be take no action at all. That could change if things improve, but my own view right now is we should be patient and give some time to this for the economy and to watch how this situation unfolds. Well, do you think the markets know something the Fed hasn't seen in terms of what's going to unfold this year? Uh, I don't know about that. I think we've been watching this uh, very, very carefully. Uh, I watch the markets very carefully. Others at the Fed watch this carefully. I think we've been trying to balance a uh, very tight labor market, a strong consumer, uh, and trying to meet our dual mandate. But I think, uh, I think it's critical in the job I'm in that you will pay very close attention to what the markets are saying. But it, it, it's important in, that, in, in what they tell us about what's going on in the economy. And also some of these market forces, including financial conditions, can spill over and tighten uh, the economy and cause growth to slow. And it's critical that we are very attuned to it. Well, do you see that happening now? I think, I think it may be happening now, uh, yes. I mean, credit spreads since October have widened pretty substantially, haven't had a high-yield issue uh, for the last number of weeks, very little issuance, and I think it suggests lack of access. I think his, history has shown us and shows me that when you see that kind of action, it, it tends to, if it's prolonged, could lead to a slowing in the economy. At the Dallas Fed, we've, uh, we've got an estimate for GDP growth for 2019 that is a little below 2%. You've been hearing me say all during 2018 that while 18 would be strong, we think fiscal stimulus, the effect of it will wane into 2019. The impact of the Fed's rate increases will take hold. Uh, and so we expected some slowing in the 19. I think that slowing is even a little greater than we'd expected. So I'm watching this very, very carefully. Have you right changed now. your forecast at all? Uh, our GDP forecast for next year has come down a little bit. We were still uh, close to two, and you've heard me say before, it's been our view that by 2020 we'd be trending back down to potential about one and three quarters. But our 19 forecast has is, is come down a little bit, and it's been affected by some of these issues I just talked about global growth decelerating economically sensitive industries, and what we see going on uh, with credit spreads. And uh, the shape of the yield curve is another thing I watch very, very carefully. And all those things are affecting our forecast. Is Apple telling you anything about the state of the U.S., Chinese, or global economy? Uh, you know, we've talked for some time. Uh, we've been seeing, and I hear from contacts for the last number of months, that Chinese growth has been somewhat weaker. It's masked by the fact that they tend to use leverage investment in state-owned enterprises, investment in infrastructure, to meet their 6.5% goal. But, but a lot of the indicators I'm hearing from businesses tell me that Chinese growth has been weaker. So it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing more indications about weaker Chinese growth. And the trade tensions uh, probably is, have exacerbated that. Was well, Apple the tip of the spear, the, the, the iceberg above the water? Are we going to see more CEOs coming out with warnings like this? Uh, 
I'm not going to comment on any specific company, but I, but what I hear from I talk to about 30 CEOs a month, and and what I'm hearing from them is they're seeing some weakness in China. So it, it doesn't surprise me uh, that you're going to see some further weakness. And I've, I've been saying for some time I don't think China can indefinitely keep using leverage to grow GDP, and also they're very dependent on trade. Uh, and I'm sure these trade tensions have had some effect. And the one comment I'd make, why does it matter to us, and the reason I watch it so carefully, about 45% of uh, S&P 500 revenues come from outside the United States. So China growth slowing, uh, we're unlikely to be immune for that. We might be immune to, to it for a time, but not indefinitely. It's likely to spill over into U.S. growth, and, uh, and that's what I'm watching very carefully. Okay, you're uh, college calling for a pause in monetary policy action. What about the balance sheet? Jay Powell was pretty firm in saying at his news conference that that's going to keep running in the background. So there's a process for the balance sheet, which we set up and started in the fall of 2017. It's a, it's a specific process where we let maturities uh, lapse. We're not selling securities. We're just not replacing maturities as they expire. My own view, and I've said this also to you several times, this is unprecedented. There's no textbook for exiting uh, quantitative easing. Uh, and my own view is while there's a process in place, we should be very vigilant. I'm watching it very carefully and be very open, if necessary, to making adjustments in this balance sheet runoff if we need to. I'm not at that point yet, but I'm watching it very, very carefully. And I think we should be very open-minded uh, about, uh, about making adjustments to that process if we need to. Well, a lot of traders uh, have been complaining in recent weeks that the balance sheet has caused a drying up of liquidity. Do you think that's fair or is it just a repricing of credit? Uh, there's a number of factors. I, I, I spent about 30 years in the markets, as, as you know, uh, and, and I watch very carefully and we track trading volumes. Trading volumes today are lower than they were 10 years ago. That's a part. That was true even before the Fed started to run off its balance sheet. And so um, the, uh, with a somewhat lack of liquidity uh, in two-way flows, my guess is the market's more sensitive to any reduction of central bank uh, liquidity. And so it's just something we have to be aware of. But it, the point here is uh, I'm watching it very, very carefully, and we ought to be very vigilant about monitoring this process. It's not been done before, and we should be learning uh, from this process as it unfolds. Well, how could you adjust the balance sheet runoff? I don't really want to speculate right now. We have, uh, we have a, a runoff rate between treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, about $50 billion a month. Uh, there are a number of things we could do in terms of caps or the pacing, but I don't, I'm not there yet, and I don't even want to speculate on it, uh, other than to say we're watching it very, very carefully, and I'm watching it very, very carefully, and I think we ought to be. You said we uh, would go down to trend growth maybe uh, by the end of the year, but you also mentioned yield curve inversion, things you're watching. Have your recession fears uh, risen at all? Uh, I I note a number of things. First of all, the weakness in what I'm talking about, tightening in credit conditions. I think I'm very, I'm, I note in particular that the two-year yield is, is now below the one-year yield, which tells me, at least the market is saying, that they expect some sluggishness in 19, but even more sluggishness 
in 2020. Uh, and, um, and obviously the 10-year rate in the 260s tells me the outlook for growth is very sluggish. So I think the main thing I take from all that is it's critical that we take the right action at the Fed during this period. This is a very critical time. We need to be very vigilant. We need to be on our toes. And I think patience is a critical tool we should be using during this period. We can get this right. But normalizing monetary policy, by the way, was never going to be easy. For those who thought that the process of normalization was going to be easy, it's not. And we, we were destined to go through periods like this. But it's critical that we handle this the right way. A lot of uh, investors come on our shows and say, at this point, the Fed has gone too far. You've already tightened too much. Uh, is there a possibility they're right? We'll know in hindsight. My guess is that when we look back a year or two years from now, we'll talk less about the fact that we're at two and a quarter to two and a half percent today and more about what the Fed does from here. Um, I think that'll. I think what we do in 2019 will turn out to be more significant than whether uh, two and a quarter to two and a half is is uh, is too far. And I'll remind people: at a two percent inflation rate, means real interest rates are a quarter to a half. Uh, also, uh, my own view has been up up to a few months ago: the Fed doesn't need to be stimulating the economy. We're still, in my view mildly or very modestly stimulative. We're not restrictive here. So my guess is it's going to matter much more on what we do from here than anything we've done up to now. We're talking with Robert Kaplan. He's the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank, uh, joining us for a New Year interview this morning. Uh, you look at the WIRP function on the Bloomberg, calculates interest rate probabilities, and basically the markets have priced out any move for 2019. In fact, there's more likelihood of a cut before the end of the year than another rate increase. Is that a fair assumption in the markets? Uh, market, market expectations can change on a dime. Sentiment can change. I can just tell you my own view, which is uh, uh, I would advocate we shouldn't be taking any further action until some of these uncertainties resolve themselves. And I think that could take several months. I'm open-minded about what the timetable might be. Uh, and they'll be watching very, very carefully. Has the idea of a cut even entered your discussions or, or mind yet? It hasn't entered my mind. Uh, I think my main, uh, my main objective is just to be vigilant and be patient uh, and monitoring the economy during, during this uh, period here for the next number of months. Inflation, in my judgment, is not running away from us. We're running about 2%. Uh, I think the structural forces of technology and to some extent globalization are having a muting effect on inflation. So we've got the luxury at the Fed. We're very fortunate. We've got the luxury to be patient, and we ought to take advantage uh, of that opportunity. You're the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of the oil patch, so with oil prices down 40%, yeah. is this going to be like 2016 where investment suddenly dries up and that hits the larger economy? Uh, my guess is probably won't go to that extent, but we've got a few things going on. Some of them are supply-related and some are demand-related. So. U.S. has produced more than people had expected. Uh, that's number one. The, the uh, shale uh, and, and Permium has been much more prolific than people thought. Number two, Saudi Arabia increased production, as you know, in other OPEC countries. And then uh, the U.S. gave more waivers than were expected for Iranian production. So that's the supply side. That's created some excess supply. But the other thing that's going on in the price is people are worried about global deceleration, growth deceleration. And that's affecting the price, too. This is, part of this is a demand story. 
I think you'll see in the oil patch, because there's so many drilled and uncomplete, but uncompleted wells, you'll see production still this year net increase by a million barrels a day plus. I think the issue will be if this lower prices go on for an extended period of time, you'll have some muting effect on CapEx and it may affect 2020. But uh, our surveys show and my discussions with context suggest even at this oil price, we're above break even from most areas of the Permian Basin. Uh, Trump tweets, government shutdown, trade wars. Uh, does the dysfunction in Washington have any discernible impact on the economy yet as far as you can see? Yeah, I'm not going to comment on any any one of those, as you as you, you probably won't surprise you. But I would say the general level of uncertainty out there is very high. I talk to business people regularly. I'm a former business person, and I would say the level of uncertainty is very high. And uh, and I think when business people feel uncertain, it tends to have a chilling effect on capex employment decisions. You know. Uh, uh, tr trade tensions are, are an example and part of that uncertainty. Uh, also, I'm very aware of the fact that input costs for companies have gone up. Pricing power is lower than it's been in my lifetime. And so there tends to be a margin squeeze going on. All that creates uncertainty, which tends to cause businesses to be more careful about making investment decisions. Were the president's tweets about the Fed discussed in any way, overtly or indirectly, at the December 19th meeting? Yeah, I, I, won't, I won't comment on that other than to say, uh, which won't surprise you, uh, the standard for the Fed, which uh, I'm confident we'll adhere to, is we'll, we'll make decisions without regard to political influence or, or political considerations, and I, I'm very confident around the table, that's the standard we're going to uh, uphold. Well, the president did tweet that uh, if the impasse over the government shutdown continues, he might close the southern border. As the Fed official responsible for much of that southern border, what impact would that have? Well, uh, uh, the fact of the matter is our trade flows with Mexico are critical to U.S. competitiveness, are critical to U.S. GDP. Texas, by the way, is the largest exporting state in the country, but there's a whole swath of industries in the United States that use logistics and supply chains across that border to improve their global competitiveness. It's critical to jobs and growth in the United States. When you look ahead to 2019, uh, has your outlook changed in terms of whether you're worried about where we are, uh, do you think it can be managed? Can the Fed uh, bring us in for a soft landing? Um, I'm hopeful that we can, but I think it's critical what we do now. Uh, you know, people ask me about the probability of recession and what I tell them, there'll be a recession someday. Our job at the Fed is, uh, is maximum employment with price stability and to try to extend this expansion. And I think we, we have an opportunity, depending on what we do here in the next months, that we can handle this right uh, where we can, we can achieve that dual mandate. But it's critical, I think, what we do here over the next several months. Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Fed, joining us on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide this morning. Thank you very much. We'll Thanks, send it Mike. back to you. Michael McKee, thank you so much. Of course, Mr. McKee in the press conferences with Chairman Powell and here with the Dallas Fed president. Right at the end of that interview, John Farrell, it was really classic Kaplan. It's critical what we do now. And, and by we, I think it's fascinating. To, I know with Kaplan, it's an open we. What does President Trump do? What does Secretary Mnuchin do? What does Chairman Powell do in the set of decisions? And, and John, what I really heard there within his dovishness was a more data-dependent Fed.
to international relations in our first conversation this year with James Stavridis. He is at uh, Tufts Fletcher School, uh, a former admiral of the Navy with a nodding acquaintance to being on the boat, on the ship, and also working with NATO as well. James Stavridis, Happy New Year to you. As usual, you start strong with looking at the reading that needs to be done. And I love how you go to one of my favorite authors, Nathaniel Philbrick, talking about the Battle of Yorktown and the value of allies. Does the Pentagon have any allies left? (laughs) Yeah, they've been dropping like flies lately, Tom. But uh, so far, we do have allies, and we ought to remember that. And as we look back on that brilliant book by uh, Nat Philbrick, a good friend of mine, uh, we ought to recall that uh, it was France, our ally, who stood with us and delivered our independence. And today the NATO alliance is strong. Japan is strong. South Korea is strong. Yeah. Under a little pressure from this administration, but still a basic part of our foreign policy. It, 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 within the conversations you have, and it would be rude of me to say, have you spoken to General Madison and all that uh, baloney? But the way that the general has been treated by the president how does your Pentagon respond to that as an institution? Um, informally, there is enormous dismay in the Pentagon that somebody of the stature and the intellect and the quality of General Jim Mattis, whom I've known for decades, was summarily dismissed or quit, depending on whose version of events you follow. Officially, Tom, uh, the Pentagon will continue to do what it always does. It'll stand on a wall and defend this country to the end. Admiral Stavridis, I'm wondering if you could just sort of use your naval and strategic background in the context of China and a book that you have recommended called On Desperate Ground, and what we should take away from reading this book by Hampton Sides about China and understanding them not only from a military and trade perspective, but from a political and cultural perspective. Yeah, terrific question. The book is about the Korean War, and it's a cautionary tale for modern times, right? In other words, we know what a war on the Korean Peninsula would look like, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, dead. That was before there were nuclear weapons involved. So A, we ought to take the cautionary message, and B, we ought to remember when China's back was pushed to the wall by MacArthur with U.S. troops surging north, they responded, they responded hard, and they pushed us all the way back down that peninsula. We should not underestimate China's will in a military conflict. So I wouldn't say we're quite on desperate ground yet between the U.S. and China, but skirmishes lead to wars. We need to be very cautious and careful in how we deal with China. So what is the scuttlebutt among your colleagues and other officials in and outside of the military about the future of the United States' role in the Pacific? We need to remain engaged. Uh, To walk away from the Pacific uh, takes us away from the economic engine of the earth. On the other hand, we have got to find a modus vivendi with China. And I'm particularly concerned this week with the exchange of messages, if you will, between President Xi of China and President Tsai, of Taiwan. Right. In their New Year's messages, they went back and forth about unification. 
that could be a real flashpoint in 2019 that's been relatively quiet over the last decade. Admiral, I, I, of course, identified you with Fletcher School, and of course, you exited Tufts and Fletcher School here after five years herding uh, cats known as a faculty. And I, <laughs> I, I would love to know, within the vogue of international relations, what was your biggest surprise for students within the international relations after five years at Fletcher. It is so in now to do international relations. What's your message to students, undergraduates, graduates, and their parents who want to pursue IR? Number one, by far, is that international relations gives you an opportunity to serve, to serve your country uh, conventionally in the military, but in the diplomatic corps at the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, in international business is a form of service. Engaging globally provides service to the world. And I'll close by saying our students focused in particular, Tom, on issues of equality globally and mm -hmm. the environment. And it's a very idealistic space for students to be in and I think is a very powerful yeah. one in today's world. James Trevitas, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Writing for Bloomberg Opinion uh, as well, and a former uh, NATO uh, Supreme Allied Commander. With us now, Astiga Gunawardine, uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence, and this has to do with the processing of biotechnology. It's not about Leninger's biochem or Morrison and Boyd, for those of you who have a certain vintage in organic chemistry. It's about the technology fold-in that leads to Bristol-Myers cell gene. Were you surprised at this acquisition? Of, is it dinosaurs mating? Can you get, get more sophisticated than that? Uh, I think a couple of investor friends of ours put it very eloquently, Tom, is this blind leading the blind? Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, this is, this is, um, Celgene was built on protein homeostasis, as you know. Um, but I think this is a very still... You got to tell people, what is protein homeostasis? Basically regulating the levels of different types of protein in your body. And they found that ha that has a uh, immunomodulatory uh, response. It stimulates or, or, or tones it down. So Celgene's drugs and its, its lifeblood has been built around this. But it was something that I think they kind of stumbled upon. Um, and we're still understanding about how this actually really works. And, you know, recent... Uh, literature that has come out over the last decade or so is interesting, but still hasn't led to the, the next... There's no blockbuster there. I mean, Revlimid is, is a massive drug. Well, Re but Revlimid is already on the market. Right, right. The, the, the follow-ons, we've not seen a good follow-on yet uh, to Revlimid problems. You know, your work in Western New York at, our, at Rochester Institute of Technology, and that, of course, means University of Rochester next door in Strong Memorial Hospital. There's a million Strong Memorial Hospitals out there where in the old days you did research for big pharma companies to go right where Pim Fox was, which is blockbusters. Mm -hmm. Is there a desperation in this transaction because those nostalgic old days are over? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think the nostalgic old days are really over. There's still blockbusters out there. But I, I think what the, the rationale for Bristol was that they had cash to deploy and this is, uh, you know, Celgene's right now, this business model, very cash generative. And I think they will look at this it's as a, a way. financial it's transaction. A financial They're transaction. buying a cash flows, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. From a portfolio, Portfolio standpoint, we don't see a lot of 
actual sensor overlap at the sensibility here. Do you sense any relief from Celgene shareholders that, oh my goodness, oh yeah, thank, oh, yeah Pim. <laughs> the, thank my lucky stars, someone is buying the company? Yeah, so one of the things we've been seeing lately is that the, the valuations of Celgene prior to this deal already um, factored in a potential early revlimid generic, earlier than anticipated, um, and assigning very little value to the pipeline. Investors were pretty much hate-selling this stock. Exactly. Well, then who affected this merger besides Morgan Stanley and MUFG or doing the financing of $74 billion large? Did Bristol-Myers go, we got to do this? Or did Celgene go, wow, 2018 was harsh, let's go? I don't know. I mean, I think for, from Celgene management, management perspective, which is the company I actually cover, um, they were looking for an out. So the, the other yeah, alternative... Yeah, thank you. Well the, said. The, the other alternative was that they had to deliver consistently on upcoming catalysts. And the last 12 to 18 months have shown okay. that they sucked at that. I mean, Pim, you do all the fancy financial. I'm just going to point out 24,000 warm bodies at Bristol-Myers Squibb and Celgene has 7,500. So just on an employee basis, it's one-third, one-fourth mm -hmm. the size. Ostica, when you look at Bristol-Myers Squibb, their drug, Opdivo, mm -hmm. that's what really, this is the immune harvesting, har harnessing cancer drug, right? Mm -hmm. This is the one that is supposed to help your immune system fight cancer. Correct. How much of Bristol-Myers Squibb is based on that? Um, right now, Bristol-Myers uh, my colleague Sam Fazelli covers that stock. It's basically Optivo and Eloquist are the two main products. And Optivo is the, you know, it's, it's a big, massive product for them. They and need that to succeed and they want to do everything. But they also system. need Merck not to come out with a rival drug. Well, Merck already has a rival uh, yeah, drug. Yeah, well, here. And, and, and they lost their, 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 their lead position to Merck on that, too. It's also not a PD1 drug. Keytruda, correct. Can I ask a dumb question? Are these $70,000 a year drugs? I mean, all these... Fancy drugs we're talking about. Are these the ones that are breaking people? Financial toxicity is a real concern today. Um, we, 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 in cancer, everyone talks about the side effects of chemo, but financial toxicity is something. What does that mean? Basically, toxicity? patients have to uh, sell their assets, take on loans if they can't afford the drugs. Uh, the drugs are amazing. Don't get me wrong. And we've covered this ad nauseum. Immunotherapy yeah. is you know, beautiful. Yeah but it comes at a big cost. Does Celgene have those drugs as well, or is Celgene doing something that's cheaper, more accessible? Well, Revlimid is a immunomodulatory drug. Um, it's, I wouldn't call it necessarily an, immuno, an immunotherapy like the PD-1s, like the, the, like the Optiva or the, or the, um, or the uh, Keytruda. Uh, but it also has right. other drugs that, like, like uh, it's a cell, cell therapy uh, pipeline that it got from, uh, from Juno. That is that you're taking a T cell out of your body engineering it and slapping it back in, the, those are called CAR T-cells. That's immunotherapy as well. And that's competition. That is a total different ballgame. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, that's the stuff that's going for $400,000 plus for a single treatment. Right. I mean, I think Keytruda is somewhere around 40 or $50. In, it depends where it's sold. Listen, you know, yeah, like you Australia guess. and... You know, uh, and and also depending on, on the dosing. It's, right. it's around that, like... Around they use it for mel wait, melanoma wait, 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 treatment. Wait, wait. Did you just say one treatment was $400,000? Yeah. Can I ask a dumb question? Who pays for that? Uh, patients who want a chance of a cure. $400,000? It's a slow ramp up, but 
uh, a competitor to Celgene, which is Gilead, they bought this company called Kite, and they were one of the first co uh, companies to launch a CAR T-cell therapy on the market. That's what it goes for, just under $400,000. What will their competitors do today? Everyone, you know, comparing to BMY, and you know, I, I'm so old, I think of old pharma, but how do the competitors respond to this transaction we saw this morning? Oh, that's a great question. It's my only good one of the day. So I, 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 I don't know. I mean, cause, because now Bristol, this combined entity, is going to compete against Gilead's and Novartis' CAR T cell therapy. They're going to continue to compete against Merck on the PD-1s and try to, and Roche and AstraZeneca trying to, uh, on the PD-1s and the other immunotherapies like the antibodies. So this is going to be an interesting company once all the dust settles. I think we did more jargon in this interview in, in four minutes with Atika that, 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 that we did. Like all right, well, I'm going to cancel out the jargon because I'm just going to mention Keytruda. Mm -hmm. You may recall that former President Jimmy Carter was diagnosed with melanoma, with cancer. Mm -hmm. This is the drug he says that he took that saved his life. That's right. This is the promise of immunotherapy, both the traditional antibodies like Keytruda and Optivo, as well as the CAR T-cell therapies like um, like Kimria and Yescarta. Uh, these drugs, for the patient's way it works, you have amazing survival that you have. It's, it's unprecedented. Yeah, well, I mean, he was only diagnosed uh, once the tumor had spread to his brain. Yeah, and, and it, it will work then. Exactly. See, he knows everything about it. This is great. I, I learned a huge amount here. Atika Gunawardene, thank you so much. He's with Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.